Hi there, it's Kale. Just wanted to give a quick note before the show begins. This week marks the first episode with a new music producer, Dante Stewart. Throughout this podcast, you might notice some different music, and that's all thanks to Dante's talents. If you'd like to check out more of Dante's work, there's a link available in the description to check out DT News Today, otherwise known as Dante's stage name. So without further ado, welcome to 2017, welcome to a new season of Byline, and welcome, Dante. All right, that's it. Enjoy the episode. From the Times of North Indiana and nwi.com slash podcasts, you're listening to Byline, the podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Kale Wilk, and this week Byline follows up on the East Chicago leg crisis. We'll talk with the reporters, keeping their noses to the grindstone. I, I knew the day that I got a call about the lead levels being more than 200 times higher than the allowable limit, um, that this was going to be a big story. And <laughs> and we'll look at the issues, old and new, impacting the West Calumet neighborhood. Unbeknownst to us growing up, we had no idea that this was contamination that we played in every day. We lived it. So, wow. Mm -hmm. That's Sarah Reese and Lauren Cross, the duo that's been covering the environmental disaster occurring in one of Northwest Indiana's communities, the leg crisis in the West Calumet neighborhood of East Chicago. They were featured before a few months ago on Byline during the summer when information was coming to light. Well, for example, I think both of our husbands are upset with us <laughs> for um, working at home uh, and, and reading uh, about lead. <laughs> they can't pinpoint an exact amount of hours dedicated to covering the crisis each week. But it's needless to say, they give a lot of time and effort to this investigative project. Just as a small review, this past summer, residents in Zone 1 of an EPA Superfund site in the West Calumet neighborhood were informed they should seek to relocate after samples of soil in the area revealed dangerously high levels of lead and arsenic that were greater than expected. The EPA had been doing samples for several years, and it came to light that residents in the site were potentially in trouble and recommended to leave. At the time Byline first visited this topic, residents were coming to terms with this news. It was quite evident how much confusion there was. How did this even happen? What was the status of their health? Where were they supposed to move? And would they be assisted in doing so? A collection of meetings occurred as well that seemed to answer some, but not all, questions, as the EPA and the City of East Chicago worked to do what they could in their power and jurisdiction. However, should you, dear listener, want to find much of that information that's happened over the past few months, you can visit nwy.com slash ecled, all one word, where all of that coverage is located. So let's get back to Sarah and Lauren and where things stand now. As of, I think, two days ago, uh, more, less than half of the tenants in the West Calumet housing complex have moved out. Uh, initially, there was a deadline before the holidays for everyone to move out. Uh, the Housing Authority had reached a civil rights deal with the uh, Chicago-based Shriver Center. The Shriver Center had been representing uh, residents uh, in 
they're a nonprofit for tenant protection rights, basically. They've been representing them. They reached the deal in November, and since that time, uh, residents have secured um, uh, rent abatement. Uh, they have more time to move. Uh, essentially, just they have better protections um, as, they, as they move out of the West Calumet housing complex. Part of their reporting has also taken a look at the past. Sarah, in her digging, came across what was an interesting case of corruption in the construction of the West Calumet complex. I was able to obtain a um, transcript of a trial from 1976 where two of the partners in the company that um, built the West Calumet housing complex um, had been charged with bribery and uh, went to trial. And the government star witness was um, the former executive director of the Housing Authority, Benjamin Lesniak, Jr. Lesniak testified to um, taking $126,000 in bribes uh, and kickbacks uh, in relation to the construction contract. He also um, testified that he took bribes um, for the demolition contract. and. Um, uh, also uh, allowed uh, certain people to salvage materials out of the old factory buildings um, that existed at the site before the complex was built, um, including like p- copper and things like that from the site. Um, One recent event in particular, earlier in December, that caught attention was the discovery of something else in the area. Lead in the water. For some to be now. clear, the water is not related to the soil. EPA has agreed to a number of pilot programs. Um, they, they're testing indoor dust levels, and um, they also agreed to test the water. Um, and the purpose of that testing was to um, find out to, or to make sure that when um, the heavy equipment is in the area shaking the ground during excavation and they're digging around these water pipes in close proximity to them, that the the shaking of the pipes is not causing lead inside the pipes to flake and then enter the water supply. Uh, I think there's concern when you hear there's lead in the water, but I think it was our job to kind of clarify that this is not something the city would have caught with regular compliance testing. One of the individuals Sarah and Lauren have had the chance to speak with is Robert Kaplan, the acting administrator for EPA Region 5, whose office is in Chicago. He was willing to talk over the phone briefly on the topic of the water. So. Um, EPA has been doing some remedial work in Zones 2 and Zones 3. And what I mean by that is that we've been doing some uh, excavation, taking some uh, soil that was contaminated with lead and replacing it with clean soil. And in the course of that, it's possible that you could disturb pipes that are buried under the ground. And in, in disturbing the pipes, you might dislodge some scale that's built up on the pipe. Scale is like a protective coating. Uh, that keeps the lead that's in the pipe away from the water. And if that happens, there's a possibility of lead getting into the water. So EPA wants to be extra protective. We want to take measures in East Chicago uh, that we had not taken in any other city in the country. In other words, as we started to dig, we wanted to test whether the digging itself was disturbing that lead scale uh, on the pipes. Did the digging itself lead to an increase uh, in lead in drinking water? Uh, And what we did was we set up a pilot study. In order to do that, we did sequential sampling, which is basically taking a a sample of the water that's coming out of the tap at regular intervals to do a profile. Basically, 
you do it at these time intervals to see where the peak of the lead is. If it's from the very first samples, it's likely coming from inside the house. If it's from the middle samples, it's coming from the lead line. If it's from the very end, it might be coming from some other source like the street. So basically, if you do this uh, sequential sampling, 12 to 20 bottles uh, over the course of a number of minutes, you're going to get a very accurate profile of the lead. Uh, and we did that before, we did that after the excavation. The situation has prompted Mayor Anthony Copeland to request that Indiana declare the site an emergency disaster area, as well as request federal funding and assistance from the Indiana governor. It was discovered that 18 of the homes that were tested had levels that were higher than the EPA's threshold before action was taken. However, as Robert pointed out, the results were inconclusive as to what pipes exactly were causing this. It was definitely inconclusive as to uh, what we found afterwards. Uh, in other words, we uh, tested the water, we found uh, that there was only a very limited uh, uptick in uh, some of the samples. Most were non-detect or no increase. Um, we're being very careful in drawing conclusions from that, and we, we want to study it some more. Uh, we haven't drawn a conclusion at all uh, that um, the work increased the availability of lead. Uh, one of the things that we did as we did the study was provide people with bottled water and then filters. So just to make double certain that there was no exposure, we wanted to give people the filters and bottled water so that they can protect themselves just in case uh, we did disturb the scale. Robert also noted that more orthophosphate, a chemical that helps prevent lead from leaking into the water, was recommended for the pipes in East Chicago. We want to see more of that orthophosphate uh, available in the system. And in some of the samples, we found low orthophosphate. In some of the samples, we found no orthophosphate. That's not a compliance issue. We need to underscore that. Um, nothing that the city did uh, is out of compliance with something that's called the lead and copper rule. In fact, uh, all of what we've seen indicates that it's a very well-run well system and that they were in compliance. But what we did find was in the locations that we sampled, uh, there was not as much orthophosphate as we would have liked to have seen. So we made a recommendation to uh, IDEM, the state of Indiana's uh, environmental management uh, agency, as well as to the city utility that they increase their level of orthophosphate, uh, and they did so. What this does point to, though, is a looming issue of aging infrastructure across the country, something that could happen in more places than just Flint, Michigan, or St. Joseph, Louisiana. I'd, I'd say East Chicago is no different than um, many cities all across the country that have legacy uh, lead pipe issues, uh, including Chicago, including uh, Milwaukee, Detroit, um, um, Boston, Providence, there are many places across the Midwest and, and Northeast where lead was used uh, as a piping material. Um, it was ubiquitous, it was used up until relatively recently, and there are literally millions of these pipes in the ground and literally thousands of communities that are exactly similarly situated as East Chicago. Uh, the thing to do uh, is make sure that you have adequate corrosion control, that the system is being run right, uh, and that's exactly what's being done in East Chicago. So. Uh, Flint really shined a light on this whole issue, uh, and other communities looked at their own infrastructure and said, uh, do we have lead pipes, and what condition are those lead pipes in? I think it is going to cause a um, re-examination of the nation's drinking water infrastructure, 
uh, folks are already looking closely, communities are looking closely at uh, their infrastructure and the ways they can improve it. Uh, they're looking at corrosion control optimization, and they're also looking at, at filters uh, as a first line of defense. They're also looking at what efforts can be done to remove lead pipes uh, from the infrastructure and replace them with more modern and safer pipes. More information on the water is likely to be forthcoming. Another recent item added to Sarah and Lauren's reporting was a set of vignettes Lauren did in which several individuals from the West Calumet neighborhood were profiled. They're rather meaningful pieces on what the neighborhood means to these people that have called it home, and are worth the read. One of those individuals was this man. Byron Duke Florence. Um, I'm retired. Uh, former government employee. I was born and raised here, which is considered Zone 2. Uh, I, I owned a home in Zone 3, which is on the other side of Kennedy. Um, I've been here. I left here in, at 18 when I went to school at Northern Illinois University. Byron played football at Northern Illinois University and even went on to play with the Kansas City Chiefs for a year and a half. Eventually, he came back to East Chicago, lived in a house in what is now Zone 3 of the Superfund site, and now lives in the home he grew up in, in Zone 2. If you're aware, when you pulled up, you see the housing maintenance complex right across the street. Mm -hmm. And then you see the the development. Um, When I grew up, there was no development there. There was no zone one. That was our playground. That was our football field, baseball field, hunting grounds. Um, you know, that zone didn't exist. So unbeknownst to us growing up, we had no idea that this was contamination that we played in every day. We lived it. Built tunnels out there. We built places where we could make tents. We climbed over the fence, went in the plant. We dug holes under the fence, went into those plants. We used to bust open those bags that who knows what might have been it because it was just poof, powder would come up. And it was a, a thrill seeking thing for us. Um, and then we found out later at age 60 I'm 65 now that we were playing in a cesspool of contamination you know and this it was like not so much what you knew when you knew and now you're finding out that it was so much that happened to people that you can tie that to that it just it's, it's, it's sickening Absolutely sickening. Uh, Like I was explaining to Lauren, they they brought in a a, a doctor. He spoke at the library about a month ago. And he said one of the first things that's happened with lead, it gets in the bone. And I almost jumped up out of my chair. Uh, February 17th of this year, I was diagnosed with bone cancer. And I say, man, this is remarkable. You know, thank God since then I've, I've been treated 
through chemo and I'm not no longer have it. And, and it bothers me to think how many people have literally died from these same ailments, from that same exposure that I grew up with. And I could probably name you 30, 40 people verbatim that died from some type of affliction that you could tie to that land. And that bothers me. It troubles me. And it concerns me. Especially now that you have all them people that lived out there these many years. And they had kids and grandkids that were subject to the same conditions that I went through. You know, it's, 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 it's a tragedy. Byron is one of many residents affected by the leg crisis in one way or another. His story, as well as the other vignettes, offer an intimate look at how this all comes down to the people, who've more or less had the rug pulled from underneath them. He noted that he liked it that Lauren took time to speak with him. We just we just met, and, we, you know, Lauren walked the community with us. She went through the facilities out of the lead plant. She talked with residents out in Zone 1. Um, and I think the more she asked, the more she got involved. And the more she got a chance to talk to people. And it was almost she was taking on a job that really went farther than what she thought she was going to find out. I think she was good for what she did. What you're hearing is the police scanner on another evening at the Times newsroom. At this moment, Lauren is taking care of her usual duties, part of which involves reporting on accidents or crimes that may happen in the region's communities. Hey, uh, Lieutenant Hoyta, this is uh, Lauren Cross from the Times. Uh, we received a tip tonight about a serious possible fatal accident at Michigan Street and in the If you could yeah, give me a call for me, right Somewhere in between all of this, you know she, along with Sarah, is examining a new document, or scheduling another interview, to continue the coverage of West Calumet. There was something important Byron said toward the end of our interview. The, the, the more media involved, I think more information has been get, getting out. But I think it's positive that they've been able to get information out to the public all around this country of how bad this situation is. It's, 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 a, it's a comforting thing now when you read the newspaper and they're actually giving information out. You're not letting it die. And this has been a problem in a lot of communities throughout the, this country. You know, it just dies and goes away. This is a situation that you cannot let go without putting some attention nationally. It's an interesting comment. This idea was noted before, but like the coverage... It hasn't died either. Sarah and Lauren have provided a valuable function in aggregating and clarifying the hodgepodge of information that's often developing. 
as well as digging for the information already around. Sure, there's been reporting done by the New York Times and National Public Radio, but the consistent and copious reporting performed by the local news source? Well, maybe that just rings a little different. I, I knew the day that I got a call about the lead levels being more than 200 times higher than the allowable limit, um, that this was going to be a big story. And <laughs> the, the business editor, Keith Benman, one morning told me, well, this is going to take up the next year of your, year of your life. I think in the next couple of years. Honestly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's necessary. Um, and it's good to help people. You know, I get more thank yous from people for my coverage of this. Um, people don't don't thank you for writing about homicides very often. So it's, it's, it's nice to know that, um, you know, that people appreciate the coverage. Um, it's nice to have an opportunity to, to build relationships with people in the community. Um, um, it's, it's kind of a privilege to get to know many of them. Byline is a production of The Times of North Oceania. Episodes come out every two weeks, and you can find any of them at nwi.com podcasts. Byline is also on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You could just type in NWI Byline in the search bar, and we should pop up. If you've got a media player and want to download our episodes or listen on the go, Byline is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. We just kindly ask that you rate us and leave a review because it actually really helps. And we like to hear from you, whether that's constructive comments, feedback, or suggestions for topics you'd like to hear more about. Just drop an email to kale.wilk at nwi.com. Reporting for this week's episode came from Sarah Reese, Lauren Cross, as well as myself, Kale Wilk. We'd like to thank Robert Kaplan and Byron Florence for taking time to talk with us for this episode as well. If you'd like to find out more information on almost anything and everything about the East Chicago lead situation, like it was noted before, you can just type in nwi.com slash ecled, all one word. Sarah and Lauren have a copious amount of work available to view, as well as some selections in there from Times Education reporter Carmen McCollum and Courts reporter Bill Dolan. All of the information sheds light on the past, present, and certainly the future to come for West Calumet. Last but not least, thank you to Summer Moore, the Times' digital and audience engagement editor, who is also the show's creator. She's the leader of this operation that helps guide episodes into what they are, each week. I'm Kale Wilk, and from the Times of North Oceania, thank you for listening. See you next time.